as we get into the text today, and I think uh, most of us who are teaching through this text can attest to the fact that there's a large portion of scripture that we are covering each week, and uh, perhaps even today you might get a sense that we are just uh, speeding by. Um, I want us to have enough, and that is true, I want to acknowledge that. Um, I want to uh, also say that uh, it is, I, I want we want you to have enough to whet your appetite so that you can get deeper into the text uh, yourself as well as we look at these number of uh, texts today. So we'll, we'll be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and we will try to finish until Mark chapter 9, verse 13. There we go. Mark chapter 8, wor tw verse 27. Mark chapter 9, verse 13. There's a, there's a few different ways that we can look at the book of Mark. You know that it has 16 chapters. Uh, we know that verses and chapters are not inspired. Uh, yet they help us understand, grasp, and understand uh, a way which in which we can understand the text. Uh, here's another way that we can look at this particular book. Uh, if we remind ourselves of the key theme, uh, it is Jesus, the suffering servant. Considered in three acts, you can think of Jesus' public ministry in and around Galilee, which we covered until the last time that we met, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 26. Then, uh, from today, we'll look at Act 2. It is Jesus' private ministry, and that happens mostly on the way to Judea. We begin today, and then we will think about it, reflect on it, study it till until, uh, until chapter 10, verse 52. And then Act 3, as Jesus' passion, as we get closer to that last final week, begins in chapter 11, verse 1, and goes on to chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, in this section, in today's section, and then uh, the next few lessons, we'll be introduced to what is known as the passion predictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will mention them as we get to the text. You know, last time when we met, we saw Jesus healing the deaf and the dumb man in the region of Decapolis, and then he feeds 4,000 men, which is essentially more than 20,000 individuals if you include men, women, and children. And then we saw the Pharisees and the scribes who come to our Lord to ask for a sign from him. Apparently, all the miracles were not enough for them, uh, and so they, out of their hardness of heart, continue to seek for a, for a sign. Uh, but we le also learned that no sign is sufficient for a heart that is closed to truth. And then we saw the disciples go into a spiritual relapse. They began uh, to behave like they could not hear or could not see or could not understand. Uh, but our Lord Jesus Christ is a patient teacher. He's very gentle with them as he corrects them in the error of their thinking. And so we ended the last lesson by considering the only miracles that the Lord does in, in two stages. And so that brings us to the text that we have in front of us today. We are in the midst of a, uh, a text that is highly significant. You know, when we are in the midst of a trial or when we are suffering, when we are being ridiculed or mocked uh, and insulted because we claim to follow Christ, uh, we can tend to focus on the immediate situation. Uh, we can tend to think about 
why we are going through what we are going through, and we can be, we can, uh, be uh, uh, tempted to be consumed with the present. And the only thing that sometimes concerns us at that time is what we are going through. But the text that we will look at today is going to remind us that while the believer's life is marked by pain and suffering and trials and difficulties, yet he can rest in the fact, she can rest in the fact that in the future, glory is coming. He or she can rest in the fact that this is not all there is to this life, that a wonderful and glorious future awaits him and her. And that our best life is, is not this, but the one that is yet to come. But on what basis can a believer reach such a conclusion? Well, a believer can reach such a conclusion on the basis of what happens to his or her master. What happens to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, what happens to him will also happen to his disciples. But our suffering and his suffering is not the same. Because what happens to him accomplishes salvation for us. But when we suffer, when we go through trials, our faith is purified and we become more like our master. And so as we consider this text, I've titled our lesson for today, Present Suffering and Future Glory. Present Suffering and Future Glory. If I had to summarize our lesson, here's how I would put it. In the midst of the suffering in the present, uh, this is while following Jesus, in the midst of the suffering in the present, followers of Christ are encouraged by the hope of the future glory. In the midst of the suffering in the present, while following Jesus, followers of Christ are encouraged by the hope of the future glory. And so let's begin then as we consider the text in front of us as we look first of all at the present suffering. Verse 27 in chapter 8. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for the group, answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. As we consider this text, we want to understand where we are. Uh, if you look at the map on the screen, uh, Jesus has now left the region of Galilee and is on his way to Judea. He's in the region of the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It is significant to note that Jesus chooses the region of the villages around Caesarea Philippi. It's significant because it was in this region that Herod had built a temple that was dedicated to the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar. Uh, this was the location of an imperial cult. And so Jesus chooses uh, this location to be identified as the one who is the supreme deity and one who is ultimately the lawful king. As we consider the present suffering, we'll look first of all at, at the person of Jesus, that the person of Jesus Christ affirmed. You know, as he goes along with his disciples in this region, it is important to remember that by this time, the disciples have been with Jesus for well over a year, perhaps even two years. He asks them then, he gives them a test. 
Question one, who do people say that I am? You know, the disciples have had their ears to the ground. They have known and heard about what people are saying. And so they tell Jesus what they have been hearing. They have collected or perhaps done even a public survey. They're listening to what others are saying. Some of them, they say, uh, say that he is actually John the Baptist. Others, that he is the Elijah. And some others are saying that you're one of the prophets. In fact, Matthew also tells us that uh, some people even said that he was the prophet Jeremiah. Now, people had obviously seen that Jesus speaks and acts with authority. He has performed many miracles. And so they, they recognize the fact that there's something special about him. This answer to the first question tells us that people recognize the fact that Jesus was, was unique and he was special. But no one has reached the stage where they go a step beyond this. And so he asks them the second question. Jesus asks them, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And that's one of the most important questions that can be asked. For those of you who were at the concert yesterday, I was almost afraid Pastor Tom is going to go off on this particular question, but he, he didn't. You know, it's helpful to know why, uh, what others are thinking about Jesus, but it's far more important to settle the matter for ourselves. As individuals, what do we think or who do we think Jesus is? And by how we respond to that question and by how we respond to him, we are really answering the question. Uh, we do answer the question. For example, Islam says that Jesus was merely a prophet. Hindu culture says he is a god among the many pantheon of gods uh, that are out there, but he is not the god, the only god. In the 21st century that all of us are living in, many are willing to admit that Jesus was a good man. He was a moral, morally good man, but they have no desire to go beyond that. Just as the general culture around Jesus' time, it was very, very similar. Who is Jesus? Is he a great miracle worker only? Is he a prophet? Is he a great moral teacher? But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers the Lord's question. He is, as I said, the spokesman for the group. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Uh, this, is the only, this is only the second time that Mark mentions the word Christ. Uh, the first time he mentions it when he introduces us to the gospel. He writes in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, this confession from Peter is, is monumentally significant. It is important. This is kind of the, the Mount Everest of, gospel, of the gospel of Mark. Uh, this is the pinnacle. This is the apex. Everything that has happened so far in this book, this account, has led up to this point, and everything will flow from this point. You know, Christos, the Greek for the Hebrew Mashiach, or in English, Messiah. Uh, this is a title... And it is, it, it is one that signifies that Jesus was one who was sent from God. He was appointed by God and that he was anointed by God to come as a deliverer. That's what Christos means. That's what Messiah means. Yes.
good question. And I think we'll try to cover it in the course of our time together. But that is a good question. There were some who did recognize it. And I think it's, uh, it happened because of a misunderstanding of uh, literature that took place, that was written between the, new the testamental periods. But we'll come to that, yeah. Now, um, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Uh, Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One is what we would say. And from here, the question of the identity of Jesus Christ is affirmed. It is settled. The disciples correctly identify who Christ is, the person of Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the person that God has sent as their deliverer. He, in his first coming, came to deliver his people from their sins, Matthew chapter 1. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what he came to accomplish in his first coming. He is the chosen Savior who came to rescue sinners. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say, whom, among whom I'm foremost of all. You know, who is Christ is a question that needs to be settled in your life and mine. Don't be satisfied with what others tell you about Jesus Christ. Come to the conclusion about who he, who he is yourself as we look at this text. And if you do that, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is the one that God sent for you and for me. Let me stop here and ask, who, who do you say? Is that a question that you have settled in your own heart? Is he merely someone who helps you in your difficult times? Is he merely someone who is there for your emotional support? Is he one of many ways to you, or is he your Lord and Savior? You know, the disciples have identified him correctly, but it was not yet time to tell others about it. So you might ask, why? Well, the reason he tells them to tell no one about it, verse 30, is because that would only have been half the story. You know, Jesus healing the sick, Jesus performing miracles, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus giving sight to the blind and making the deaf hear and the dumb speak is only half the story. It's only half the truth because physical healing is temporary. But what is far more important and far more significant is our eternal destiny. Uh, this is the reason there's no place for prosperity gospel in the church of Jesus Christ because that is only half the truth and half-truth is no truth at all. And so for now, don't tell anyone about it because you will be telling only half the truth. But there will be a time when you will be commanded, you will be instructed to tell not only your neighbors, but men and women throughout the world. And that time has not yet come as we consider where we are in the text. They have identified the person of Christ, but they still need to understand the process that he needs to go through. They need to understand the purpose for which he came in his first advent. What then is the purpose? Notice, secondly, the purpose of Christ foretold, verse 31 to 33. And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know, Jesus uses for himself, for himself a title that Daniel has used for the anointed one, and that is the title of Son of Man, verse 31. And he goes on to tell them that this Son of Man must suffer many things. He further tells them that he will be rejected by the religious authorities of that time, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now these individuals and these groups were important because they were a part of the Sanhedrin. And thirdly, he tells them that he will be killed. He's going to die. But that's not the end of the story, although the apostles and the disciples heard only that. He tells them, fourthly, that he will rise again. Verse 32 tells us that he was stating the matter plainly. I'm sure most of us like that. We like clarity. I like clarity. I like logical flow when someone is explaining something to me. There is clarity in what the Lord is saying. The clarity flows from the fact that for the disciples, they are now convinced of who Jesus is as a person. They are now ready to understand what it means for him to come in his first advent. So Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him because he has misunderstood what Messiah meant and what he came to accomplish. I don't know how he approached the Lord. Perhaps he said, um, Lord, do you have a minute? Can I talk to you for a second? Uh, we don't know the exact words Peter uses, but Mark does not record them for us. But Matthew mentions that he said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you, Matthew 16. Now, how do you say, God forbid it, Lord? How do you say, Lord, and then say no at the same time? Well, Peter pulled that off. As soon as he mentions about his suffering, the disciples really tune themselves off. They don't hear about his rising again because they had a certain view of who the Messiah is, and here's, we come, here's how we answer that question. You see, that view did not come from the Old Testament. That view... Their faulty view of who Messiah was came from the apocryphal literature, uh, which originated during the intertestamental period. What is that? Well, that is the time between the, old, the last book of the Old Testament and when it was written, and the first book of the New Testament. And in this period, various theories about who the Messiah would be began coming up. And of course, now with the Romans ruling over them, it was in some sense sinfully natural for them to think that when the Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow the rule of those who are ruling over us at this moment. But what were some of the other things that we can consider about this view? You see, for the Jews in the first century, the Messiah would come and establish a political and earthly kingdom. He would deliver them from their present oppressors, the Romans in this case. He would finally rescue them from the Romans and establish a kingdom for the Jews. The Israelites then would not be under any authority uh, that was foreign in that sense, but would themselves reign. Now, that kind of an understanding, there was some basis for that understanding because, you see, about 900 years before this particular event, Israel experienced one of their most glorious decades when they were reigned by King David and, and King Solomon. They were prosperous, 
and the prof they were aware of the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament that linked Messiah to King David. And so they were expecting to have a similar experience that they had or their ancestors had 900 years back. You know, kings were expected to show and display how powerful they were, but they were not expected to be victims. But had these men and women, at least those who misunderstood who the Messiah would be, had they gotten their view from the Old Testament, they would have aligned themselves with those who were waiting for the Messiah to deliver them from their sins. How do we know that? We looked at a passage, if you were there in the first service, we looked at one. There are many others, but consider some verses with me. I'll read them. You don't have to turn them. But in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel, when he speaks to Joseph in a dream, he says to uh, him about Mary that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19.10, Luke writes, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the key verses in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the purpose for which Jesus came into this world in his first advent was to die. Because it was through his death that salvation for you and for me could be accomplished. So nothing could be more important than the very purpose for which the Son of Man came into this world. And so verse 33, Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. Uh, that is one of the most sternest rebukes that you will find in the scriptures. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know, God's way of accomplishing salvation for you and for me was through suffering. God required unblemished and spotless blood to be shed for the sins of his people. And Jesus came to die in order to accomplish that for you and for me. And if you are not in alignment with this process that God has set, you are on Satan's team effectively. You are in cahoots with God's enemy. You know, this is the second time that Satan would try to tempt our Lord and distracting him from his plan and purposes. All three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the incidents of the temptation of Christ. But Jesus, being the perfect God-man, would not yield to that temptation. You see, our Lord is laser-focused on the purpose, the plans that he came to accomplish. He was sent to accomplish salvation for you and for me. You know, man's interests are focused on the immediate, but God's interests are focused on the long term. Man is focused on the temporary. God is focused on the eternal. Man is focused on self. God is focused on the sheep that he has chosen. Jesus would not be distracted from, he would not be dissuaded from the purpose for which he came. He will suffer many things. He will be rejected by the elders. Verse 31. He would be killed. How sad it would be if that was the end of the story. No, it goes on, but that is not the end. The end of the story is that on the third day that he would rise again. 
Uh, before the rising, though, there is the dying. And before the dying, there is the suffering. And Mark is telling us that we have a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. And what happens to the master ultimately also happens to the disciples. How do we know that? Notice, thirdly, the pupil of Christ identified and instructed. I mean, the student there. Mark chapter 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with, with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the previous section, he's interacting with his immediate 12 disciples. Here, he now focuses uh, on the crowd along with the disciples. Because you see, the call to be a follower of Christ, the call to be a student of Christ, uh, is not just for the 12 disciples, it's for all of us. It's for the rest of the crowd as well. It's for anyone who wishes to come after him. He tells them that they need to do two things, or they will undergo three things. Anyone wishes to come after me, uh, they must do three things. Deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow Christ. Uh, firstly, deny himself. Notice he's not telling them to abstain from something. He's not telling them to deny something to themselves or for themselves. He's telling them to deny all self-promoting ambitions. You see, following Jesus is not some part-time activity. It's not something you do on Sundays and then forget that you're a follower of Christ for the rest of the week. No, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a follower of Christ full time. Those who deny themselves have learned to say, not my will, but thine be done. What does deny yourselves look like? Well, it may mean that you may have to leave a job or maybe even a family so that you're doing what pleases the Lord. For someone who is struggling with pride, it would mean that they need to take all the steps necessary to squash that pride so that they would be humble like Christ. Uh, for some, it would mean taking on things on your schedule that takes the focus from yourself, takes the spotlight of yourself, and puts it on the Lord Jesus Christ and puts it on others. Uh, that's what denying yourself will look like. Secondly, he says, take up your cross. You know, the disciples and the crowd that he was speaking to, they were well aware of what cross looked like. They had seen multiple men who were led to be executed on a cross. David Garland, in his commentary, writes, Public executions were a prominent feature of life. Cicero described crucifixion as a cruel, disgusting penalty, the worst of extreme tortures inflicted on slaves and something to be dreaded. Perhaps as Jesus is speaking with them, they can visualize in their mind someone just carrying a cross. And so they knew what taking up a cross looked like. However, what they were not connecting the cross to was to Jesus' purposes, and they were certainly not connecting it to themselves. And when you're carrying a cross, 
if you are asked to carry a cross for yourself, what's the thing that is in your mind? Your death, right? That you are going towards your, your death. You see, a person who is carrying the cross is not thinking about the comforts and cares this life has to offer. Uh, he or she is always keeping their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then is increasing the demand on their lives a, a notch up in this particular command. They are not to only deny themselves, they are also be someone who will be willing to give their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Admittedly, we don't live in a culture yet where we are forced to do those things. We are not persecuted in those ways yet. Uh, yet there are brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who are living this reality on a daily basis. Uh, yet there are many other ways in which we could be persecuted, uh, perhaps insulted, uh, perhaps rights taken away, uh, perhaps laughed at, perhaps disrespected. But there's a third one that our Lord mentions here. He says, thirdly, they were to follow him. Uh, Jesus was whom they had to follow. He was to be their leader first. See, in their life, Jesus had always, always to be the one who has the final say. And so when it comes to primary allegiance in our life, it is to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your priority in life is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You are, and I am, in other words, l to love him more than anything else in this world. Yes, even more than we love our life. Notice what he says. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? When we love our life more than we love him, it's a waste. When we love him more than we love our life, that is the only worthy investment in this life. In the fallen world that we live in, you see our physical bodies are already deteriorating, the only eternal aspect of who we are, in other words, is our soul. And if we protect our physical body, even to the extent of the whole world, but we forfeit our soul, that is not only a bad uh, investment in the language that our Lord is using here, but it's also to lose your soul to hell. You see, nothing is more valuable than your soul, my soul, that immaterial part of us. And the only worthwhile investment is to commit our life to live completely and totally for the Lord. Can I ask you quickly, how would you rate yourself if I had to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, how much have you committed your life to Christ? Is it 1? Is it 2? Is it 9, 10? How would you rate yourself if someone asks you, how much are you committed to the Lord? Well, I hope that as we consider and read this text and reflect on it throughout the week, that we will be able to say that we have committed it all. We don't consider our lives any worth in, in comparison to what the Lord is calling us to do and to be. And then he ends this section, verse 38, with a warning. If you're ashamed of Christ in this world, he says, if you reject him in this world, he will be ashamed of you when he comes again and he will reject you. So the only people who will be saved are people who are ashamed of themselves but are not ashamed of him. As we conclude this particular section of present suffering, do you see what is happening here? Jesus himself will suffer many things as we saw in the second section. 
he himself will be rejected and he will be killed. And what happens to Jesus is what will happen to his disciples as well. You know, we as his disciples are to think like Jesus thinks and we are to expect the things that Jesus went through himself. Now again, not all of us will be called to die for him while we are here in this world, but we will face difficult times as a follower of Christ. You open your mouth, you talk to your relatives, your friends, your neighbors. Most of the times the reaction is not going to be, we were just waiting for you to tell us this. No, it's, it's going to be, uh, it looks like you've lost your mind. It looks like you've gone mad. We will be rejected. We need to expect difficult times as a follower of Christ. We don't, we, we don't need to desire it. It's not that we need to look forward to having difficult times, but we need to expect it just as our Lord went through difficult times. We will go through difficult times as well. But that's not the end of the story as we get to chapter 9, considering the future glory. The future glory. Chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 8. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. What, a, what an experience. What an experience. I want to share about seven things as we consider the picture of Christ in his glory, looking at these eight verses. Uh, first of all, notice the setting. Notice the setting. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, verse 1, there are some of uh, those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, here's what we need to understand about the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God as a term can be misunderstood. While there is a sense in which we, can, we all look forward to a kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom, so it's in the future, there is another sense in, it, in which it is also used in the scripture in the sense of a present reality. You know, every one of us who is a follower of Christ, who has called Jesus Christ as our Lord and Master, is a part of this kingdom in the present reality. Christ is the king of your life, and he reigns in your life and through your life. That is, if you're a follower of Christ. If you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in Christ, in that sense, he reigns over your life. Jesus tells his disciples here, verse 1, that some of them will not die until they see the kingdom of God. They're going to get a glimpse of what that kingdom will be uh, like in the future before they die. So there are at least two aspects of this kingdom here. First of all, they will get to see Jesus in his full glory, verse 
3. It's as if Jesus is uh, taking the veil off of their eyes and giving them a glimpse of his glorified self. Now we understand from Philippians chapter 2 as well as John chapter 17 that there was some aspect of his glory that he set aside. He did not give up any of his divine attributes. There was some aspect of his glory that he set aside. And here we find him revealing that aspect perhaps to his disciples. Not all of them, just three of them. Something of what he will be like once he will rise from the dead and something that will mark each one of us who have placed our trust in Christ when we will be raised from the dead and will have glorified bodies. You don't have to turn there, but in, the, uh, in Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20, for which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a glorious sight that, that must have been for Peter, James, and John as Jesus revealed his glory to them. What is this location that we are talking about? Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took them, uh, took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain. Now, many disagree on which mountain this is. A number have suggested that it is Mount Hermon, uh, but, but the mountain itself is simply too far from Galilee uh, to be considered one of the best options. One commentator actually suggests a far more logical place is Jermuk in the upper Galilean region. This was also the mountain with the highest elevation in the entire region. Now there is a disagreement on what mountain this is, but all of them agree that it was something that was closer to the Sea of Galilee. Specifically, it was close to Capernaum because the next day's events take place in that city. And so they are on this mountain, which is close to Capernaum. What happens on this mountain, the transfiguration? You know, Mark and Matthew use the word uh, metamorpho in Greek to describe this phenomenon that is taking place. Mentions in verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. You're almost tempted to ask Mark, Mark, can you tell us a little bit more about what happened? Uh, he does a little bit more in verse 3. Uh, he says, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. We're going back to the word transfigured as the word metamorpho, which we get our uh, English word metamorphosis from. Uh, there's a complete transformation. Uh, how complete? It's like if you were to look at a caterpillar and if you were to look like uh, at a butterfly and you would not say that the butterfly came from the caterpillar, right? That was a complete transformation. How complete was that? Well, it says his face became radiant his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, uh, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now this is significant of Mark to mention this, because not many people actually wore white clothes in Israel, in Palestine at that time, because there was so much dust that they didn't wear white clothes. And so Mark specifically highlights the fact that they were extremely white. And then he goes on to uh, in order to emphasize what he's saying, there's no launderer on earth that can whiten 
them further. So Mark is deliberately using these images to give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ. What they're seeing then is the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. They saw his majesty. Uh, this is something that only three were privileged to see. They saw Jesus' glorified body. I remember reading an account that John MacArthur actually mentions in one of his uh, articles. He says uh, he, he talked to this individual who came to meet with him, and this individual said to him, I saw Jesus. And so John asks him, well, what, what did you do? Well, he says, I, was, I, was, I got up from my sleep, I was brushing my teeth, and right next to me, uh, in the mirror, I, I, I saw Jesus Christ. Well, what did you do? Well, I continued to brush, he said. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, if Jesus were to show himself here, we would all be flat on our faces. They saw his glory, they saw his majesty. Uh, Peter recollects this very moment when he writes his letter to the dispersed in 2 Peter 1.16, he would say, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, Peter has this incident in mind as he's writing this letter. Uh, these three then saw the Lord and they saw his glory. Now this is not something that is unique to these three. We know that in some ways God has displayed his glory uh, to two other individuals. We s if you are interested, Exodus uh, 33 where Moses says, I'm not going to lead these people unless you show yourself to me. And God says to him, I'm going to let my goodness pass. He hides him between two rocks and he makes his goodness pass some aspect of his glory. Another incident that comes to mind is Isaiah 6. Remember in that chapter when he's called and he, he, cannot, he does not know what to say. He does not know how to respond and react. And then we see here with these three individuals, Peter, James, and John, the transfiguration. Then we have someone who is from the past who is interacting with the Lord Jesus Christ Obviously, Peter recognizes them. He, he, he says, let's build a tabernacle for the three of us, three of you. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So we have Moses and Elijah. Naturally, a good student of the Bible, such as all of us are, is prompted to ask, well, why Moses and Elijah? Well, why not others? Uh, the main reason is because of what they represented. You see, Moses represented the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. While Moses directed uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the people's heart to God by pointing to the law, Elijah directed people's heart to God by warning them against idolatry. And while Moses gave the law, you can say Elijah guarded the law. Also, both Moses and Elijah died in very unique circumstances. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 34, the text records for us that it was the Lord who buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. With Elijah, we know from 2 Kings chapter 2 that he went up into heaven through a whirlwind. And so unique ways in which both of them died. But also, if you remember the discussion that our Lord had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he reminds them that the law and the prophets were all talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, when we see Moses and Elijah, we can say that the Old Testament is being represented here, the law and the prophets. 
what, what do the disciples find? They found the three talking, and they got to overhear the conversation. What was it that they were talking? Well, Mark doesn't mention it here, but Luke mentions it in his gospel in chapter 9. What were they talking about? They were talking about the imminent departure of the Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, his passion that was coming up, his death. Mark, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Because nothing could be more important than that particular topic. It was going to happen in the next few days. Uh, the word there in Greek is the word exodon, which means departure or death. And we get our English word exodus from this particular word. Well, why talk about the death? Because that's what Jesus Christ came to do in his first advent. This was the very reason he had come. He had come to die for you and for me. And so about 27% of the Gospels, that is about 24 of the 89 chapters of the four Gospels, are dedicated to the last week of our Lord's time here on this earth. That is how important it was. You know, Jesus, in his first advent, as I've mentioned before, came to die. One commentator writes, Jesus' death is not an accident. It is the center of his messianic mission, soon to be brought to fulfillment. That's why he came. What else do we have in this passage? We have the audience and their reaction. They were speechless. They were terrified. Verse 6 at the end. Uh, it says, Mark says, For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. They were stunned. So much were they stunned that words that came out of their mouth didn't make much sense. One of the versions actually translates it as, and having nothing to say, Peter said. <laughs> he was speechless. Uh, let's make some tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah. But he was not realizing what he was saying. He was in the presence of our Lord in his glory. Right at, at that time, the text goes on to say, uh, tell us, a cloud began to form which began to overshadow them. And from this cloud, then God instructs. What does he instruct seventhly and finally? Is listen to him. God speaks to them from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You know, that is stunning and awesome at the same time. Uh, the last part of the sentence, listen to him, may have actually reminded the listeners about Deuteronomy 18. So let's turn there quickly, where the Lord promises the, his people a prophet. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. As you know, Deuteronomy stands, uh, the word means second law. That is, it's what was mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, in some ways is repeated again in Deuteronomy. As a summary, notice verse 19 of chapter 18. Well, let's begin in verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that wh whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet, says, shall die. Certainly, the first one that is being referred to here, one who will come from their own countrymen, and will, I will put my words in his mouth, he shall speak to them all that I command him, 
referencing the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in fact, in one of his sermons in the book of Acts, uses this particular uh, verse from the Old Testament to justify and to make case for the fact that it is Jesus Christ that the scriptures are talking about. God says here, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Not only would have been, it would have been a wonderful thing to be reminded of what was prophesied, but this would also have been a stinging rebuke for Peter and his companions. Peter, stop talking and start listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that it said. And once it said that, there is no mention of the cloud. They find Jesus alone. These three had just witnessed something that Moses and Elijah and others in the Old Testament had longed to see. They were astonished. They were stunned. They were speechless and overwhelmed. They kept silent and did not report these things that they had seen. The text goes on to tell us that this event was significant. One commentator actually writes, the transfiguration that follows both confirms the glorious identity of Jesus as Messiah and provides assurance for the disciples that after suffering will come vindication and glory. We looked at present suffering when we considered chapter 8, verse 27 to 38, and then follows the glory as we considered the first eight verses. So first of all, then the picture of Christ in his glory. Secondly and finally, the passion of Christ and Elijah, verse 9 to verse 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, or does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. There is no sense in which they are saying to the Lord in this way, all right, okay, we believe you are the Messiah, so tell us, how come there is no Elijah who has come before you? I don't think that was the attitude. I think they were genuinely wanting to understand if he is the Messiah, then where is the Elijah that the scriptures talk about? Or where do the scriptures talk about a coming Elijah? Go back a few books to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Notice the last three verses in that chapter. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So who is this Elijah? Can you help us understand if Messiah's coming has to be preceded by an Elijah, then who is this Elijah? Well, turn to Luke chapter 1 as we will consider who this Elijah is. Luke chapter 1 verse 17.
This is, of course, the angel speaking to Zacharias. And he says to him, uh, let's begin in verse 16. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's talking about John the Baptist. Verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. It was not as if Elijah was himself going to come, but someone in the spirit and power of Elijah was coming. And it is this baby that I'm talking to you about, Zacharias. What will he do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude and the dis of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He is going to proclaim repentance so that hearts are prepared to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will notice if you go back to Malachi chapter 4 that there are two actions that are mentioned there. One is preparing, but the other if you were to go back, if you had your finger there, verse 5 says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in some senses, there are two times that someone will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist was the first one in Christ's first advent, but there is another one. If you are with us in the evening, uh, studying the book of Revelation with us, Pastor Tom covered chapter 11 uh, a few months back, actually it was May, and uh, in it, in chapter 11, it talks about two witnesses coming in the tribulation period. One of the witnesses, most people who study scriptures would agree, was Moses, and the other one was Elijah. And so in some sense, verse 5 and verse 6 in Malachi chapter 4, one is talking about the second advent of Christ, and one is talking about the first advent of Christ. Did it take place? Yes, it did. The first advent did, and we had John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. What were some of the common things between John the Baptist and Elijah? Well, certainly one of them that we can say uh, uh, is that he dressed like Elijah. If we were to compare Second Kings chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 4, uh, John the Baptist, just like Elijah, preached in the wilderness. Uh, both men preached a message of repentance. Both men stood in front of kings and those in high-profile authorities and, and commanded them to, uh, to do the things of God, to honor God through their life. And so John the Baptist was one who came in the spirit of Elijah in Christ's first advent. And like I mentioned, there is another coming in the spirit and power of Elijah before the second advent of Christ. And that witness comes in, uh, during the tribulation period. If you were to want to study that further, it's Revelation chapter 11. Now you might say, well, you know, that was applicable to them. How, does, how is it important to us right now? Well, one of the things that you can draw from this last section of chapter 9, verse 9 to 13, is the fact that God's word is true. It speaks to the authenticity of God's word. What was prophesied in the Old Testament about an Elijah coming before the first advent of Christ has taken place. And if that has come true, it will also be true of his second advent. Perhaps some of us here have not placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. At least based on these last four verses, we can say that God's word is true and it will hold you accountable. 
Just like we learned in the morning in the worship center, all of us will one day bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as king. So what can we learn? How can we all tie all of this together? I've mentioned, I'll mention about four lessons that we can draw from this particular section of scriptures. First of all, Jesus' identity is clear. He is the Messiah. He is God. In chapter 8, verse 27 onwards, the disciples correctly identified the person of Christ, although they had a problem agreeing to the process that he will follow. In chapter 9, we are given a glimpse of the fact that Jesus is God. If you're here, you heard the message, you've heard the gospel. If you've not yet placed your trust in Christ, let me encourage you to think this more deeply. Be happy to talk to you after I'm done. The identity of, of our Lord is not uh, any mystery anymore. It is clear. He is the Messiah. He is God. Secondly, and more difficult of a lesson for us to understand, the reality of suffering in the life of a believer. You know, I, I wish I could mention some things to you about how good uh, in terms of material prosperity or other ways in which Christian life is prosperous, but I would only be lying. God's word is very, very clear. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul writes to Timothy, you will be persecuted. Our life in many ways, after we become followers of Christ, becomes more difficult. There are many here who come from perhaps a Roman Catholic background, and they, they know full well, or perhaps from other backgrounds, where it's challenging to even have family uh, time with other people from, from your family, from your extended family, because you and they believe in two different lords. And so suffering might be physical for some of us, like some brothers and sisters are facing throughout the world, while for others it might be ridicule, it might be insults. But we will suffer. Thirdly, uh, it speaks to the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. God's word is true. Remember, um, you know, different levels of people need different teaching, but it comes from the same word of God. I remember when my son was little, just three or four years old, uh, there was only one lesson that was taught in his Sunday school. God's word is true, and that's all he needs to know. And many times, that's all we need to know also. God's word is true. It is trustworthy. We looked at the prophecy that came true in these last section of chapter 9. Uh, it is that what God has prophesied has come true. And God, what God prophesies about the future will come true as well. He is coming back. Fourthly, and finally, for believers, suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. Perhaps some are going through more difficult times right now. While I'm not aware of exactly everything you are going through, we can be assured from the fact that God knows from his word uh, what you are going through. Perhaps there is a challenge interacting with a neighbor, uh, a relative, perhaps even with your own children, as we hear so many times about relatives that are not in the Lord. But know this, that difficult times, suffering in the life of a believer is preceded by glory. Paul, in writing to the Romans, he writes this in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What can we aim for? 
You can name the same thing as Paul did in Second Timothy as he came to the end of his life. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness or the crown which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. If you're a follower of Christ, you long for and look forward to his appearing. If you're not a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to consider what has been taught today and reflect on the fact that he is your Lord and he is your king as well. Let me conclude our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this text that we considered today. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And for those of us who have placed our trust in you, those of us who you have called, Father, that is true and real in our lives, uh, that he has come to pay the ransom for our life, and that because of his death, we have been reconciled with you. Not only did he suffer, but this text also reminds us that uh, Christian life will cost us everything. Many of us are in the middle of what it is costing us as far as being your child is concerned. As we see families separated, as we see neighbors uh, just stop talking or, or insultingly talking about us. All of those things, Lord, we learn from your text that we are to expect. But that is not the end of the story. We long for, look forward to your appearing when we will be just like you. In the meantime, as we go about this week, we know that in our life there are many simple and small decisions that we take that add up to making us who we are. And so help us to remind ourselves of the fact that you are our Lord in the simple things of life, in the complicated things of life. That we are to seek to please you in all of them. And may that be true of all of us in this week. Or open opportunities for us to share about the Lord Jesus Christ with our family, with our neighbors, with our colleagues at work. Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.